You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house, not to be mixed up with David Horowitz or the Inspector General of the FBI, but this is the Inspector General of Congress and really every branch of government, that the conservative movement, which is a fake movement, unfortunately, is not willing to engage in any oversight. You know, Part of why we have this political betrayal, really this political beatdown, this act of political adultery this week, is because we have a complacent conservative media, conservative organizations that do nothing. And, you know, I, I didn't put anything out on... Friday, because I just honestly didn't know what to say. This happened so quickly. I'm not shocked by what they're doing. I'm shocked at the underwhelming response on the right um, and the fact that there hasn't been any focus on this, which is exactly what allows them to do this. Um, Because I do believe if we had more pressure pressure ratcheted up on them, it would be a lot harder. And uh, we don't. We don't. We have our entire movement distracted on, you know, everyone trying to sell their personalities and rather than promoting uh, what's good for the country. But anyway, you know, today's late, it's late Sunday. I decided to record before the work week in between coats of paint on my ceiling in the living room. So my hands are all full of paint here. I hope I don't get it on the microphone. Um, but I, I'm just really, I'm just really ticked off. I find painting so therapeutic. You know, I was telling my wife, maybe I should just become a painter. Who needs this? Um, so, you know, rather than sit and explore, what am I, what am I doing here? Um, you know, a friend of mine who's been a warrior in this business asked me, Daniel, what have we accomplished in your lifetime in politics? Not just things that we've blocked, bad stuff that we blocked. And even those things are pretty small number. What have we actually enacted that is really, you're really proud of? And, you know, I was like, well, maybe the Bush tax cuts. Uh, I don't know. You know, aside from cutting taxes, we, we, we really haven't done anything. So rather than mourning alone, and we're, we're, we're going to get into <clears throat> some of the details that I think are important here at the end of the show. But rather than sitting in mourning, and I don't mean M-O-R-N-I-N-G, I mean M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning America, Mourning this fiscal calamity alone, <clears throat> I figured I'd bring to you a new voice. You might have heard him on the Sunday shows over the weekend. He's been fiery. He's go- going after Paul Ryan, um, you know, for really reneging on the promise. And just to discuss how deeply GOP leaders have reneged on their promise, I figured I'd bring in Congressman Jim Jordan, one of the few heroes really trying to hold the line. And ironically, the man who I believe is most instrumental in accomplishing somewhat of a Budget Control Act in 2011 um, with his valiant fight as a chairman of the Republican Study Committee back then, 
And with no further ado, it's an honor to bring to the conservative conscience for the first time, and hopefully not the last time, Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm doing fine, Daniel. Good, good to be with you. I've uh, certainly appreciated your writing uh, over the last couple of years, and I've read it, so I um, appreciate the chance to be with you today on, the, on your podcast. You know, it's funny you mentioned over the past couple of years, because I find it's pretty eerie talking to you of all people. Um, 2011 wasn't a long time ago, but it seems like you know, now it's almost seven years. You yeah. Were, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I'm telling you, I remember that we were fighting together. I'm Me on the outside, you on the inside. Um, some of your buddies, like Meadows, weren't even there yet. And we had just taken over the House. So with just one branch of government, um, you know, Obama had gone on a spending spree beyond belief. It was unprecedented after the stimulus. Yeah, and, and we were saying, look, you know, the Tea Party movement won on mainly the spending issue. We're going to come in there, change things. And we had a debt ceiling fight. And you yeah. know, it spilled into, what was it, uh, the spring, the summer, up until August. And, you know, as much as we didn't like it, because I think we could have gotten a lot more, and I know you were pushing for a lot more at the time. You're one of the last men standing as the uh, last uh, effective chairman of the Republican Study Committee. And then we had this Budget Control Act. And now they vitiated... The one spending constraint they enacted with one branch of government. My question to you is, doesn't it seem like we've gone backwards in seven years now that we control all three branches? Uh, oh, you mean, you mean the fact that this is the second largest spending increase in a decade, second only to the stimulus package, $300 billion over two years, uh, and, and we're going to run a trillion dollar deficit? You mean that? Of course we went backwards. And this is... Uh, I come back to this all the time, but it, 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 and sometimes people are like, oh, you always say that, but it's the truth. This is not what the American people elected us to do, and yet, and, and yet we, we come in here with Republicans controlling the House, the Senate, and, and uh, the White House, and we, we increase spending like that. So it is, it is so disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I find that so astounding, the fact that people forget that it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that just because Obama was the president that we wouldn't get things and we actually did get something. And then as time went on, the more power we uh, accumulated, the the less Republicans were able to secure. And then, well, yeah. Yeah, and here's the thing, Daniel. We were so poised to win. Just three weeks ago, Chuck Schumer shut down the government, didn't pay our military because he said amnesty was more important for illegals, and he got his tail kicked in public opinion. And so earlier this past week, the House sent over the exact same bill with one one variation. We sent over the same bill, except we said, let's fund our military for the full year, but let's not grow government. Let's not increase spending on, on social welfare programs and more government. Let's let's do what the American people elect us to do. We're so poised to win if we'd have just stood firm, and yet what do we do? What did our leadership do? They said, no, 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 no. Let's do what the swamp always does. Let's just spend more on everything. Let's all just shake hands. Let's all be warm and fuzzy, and we'll do what the swamp wants and, and leave the American taxpayer hanging high and dry. And that's exactly what happened, which was what was so disappointing. So what you're in fact saying is that you know, the defense spending was already in the House bill, whether you agree with it or not. I mean, I personally think we, we do need a lot more base defense, but there's a lot of wasteful stuff we're doing over these. Oh, sure, sure. You know, but fine, let's just say, okay, you have the defense spending. But then 
the non-defense spending, there's no way they had any leverage to shut down the government. After all, they don't have 60 votes. They don't have the House. They don't have the White House. And as you said, they just kind of had a pretty bad PR nightmare three weeks ago. So isn't this pretty clear that Republicans, the establishment, the leadership, they want the non-defense spending as an end to itself? It's not just yeah, that they it's, want, yeah. No, it's, it's they want the easy way out, and it like you know you know how life is. Uh, the, typically, the the things worth doing aren't easy. It, it takes hard work, and more importantly, it takes a little discipline to do what you know needs to be done. So we were so ready, right on the cusp of winning, and and no, 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 we can't do that. They just they just did what Washington, what the establishment always does. They spent more money, and, and again, that is what is is so frustrating. And you rightly point out, we always hear this excuse: "Oh, but we don't have we've got the, the Senate rules." Look, I'm for changing the Senate rules and the filibuster rule. But the fact is, yeah. we have what we have. And you, you, what you wrote the, last week was so good. You said, "Well, last time I checked, the Democrats don't have 60 votes in the Senate either." But one thing we do know, there's a majority of Republicans in the Senate, there's a majority of Republicans in the House, and there's a Republican in the White House. So for goodness sake, let's just, let's just have the debate, let's stand firm in the position we were elected to do, and when you do that, you'd be surprised at how much you can win for the American people. Yeah, this is pretty funny because, you know, the, the notion that we don't have 60 votes, so you say, all right, so that's an argument. Maybe you won't get 100 percent. You'll get 80, 90 percent. But the notion that you'll get zero percent and the Democrats get 100 um, percent, that's insane. But what scares me, Jim, is that the goalposts are moving so far to the left that yeah. Republicans are always able to keep this scam going. Well, they could have tacked on amnesty, and they didn't do that. Well, they could have tacked on a $50 minimum wage. I mean, we're now going to have these hypotheticals yeah. which should be our riders defunding. Yeah. I mean, can I ask you this? Why is it that defunding Planned Parenthood wasn't even on the table? It wasn't no, even I know. It's, it's frustrating, and, and if it's frustrating for us who are, you know, who, you follow this, you write about this, I'm in the middle of it fighting Congress, imagine what it's like for your, for your hard-working families across this, this country, and you bring up a great example. I, it's, unfortunately, our leadership is so afraid to go on the offense. You know, I learned a long time ago, my background's in the sport of wrestling, I learned a long time ago, defense doesn't win wrestling matches, you gotta go, you gotta, you gotta be on the offense. Uh, but it seems like so many of our folks in leadership are afraid to go on the offense. And in a plan for an example, when those videos came out a few years ago, we had Cecile Richards, head of Planned Parenthood, in front of the Oversight Committee. And what's our best evidence on, on how disgusting, the, the, the disgusting behavior that Planned Parenthood was engaged in? What was our best evidence? The videos. But our leadership would not even let us show the videos in the committee hearing room when we were questioning the head of Planned Parenthood. And that to me was like, they were like, and I'm like, why not use our best evidence? Last time I checked the old line of pictures worth a thousand words, why not let us use it? But they said, no, we're not, we're not going to let you use the, 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 the best evidence you have showing the ridiculous and disgusting things that were said by people in Planned Parenthood. I remember at the time, you know, two years ago, this is when Republicans already had the Senate. Obviously, Democrats had the White House. They thought they were on the hook for that. They thought there'd be a major fight to defund it, even without the presidency. And yet, amazingly, now with the presidency, it's not even discussed. Our riders, you know, de- defunding sanctuary cities, not even discussed. It's a matter of will they get amnesty? Will they get what they want? And they certainly got, you know, everything they wanted on the spending. Well, yeah, sure. And I mean, a great point you bring up, and and and. 
And that's what that's what concerns so many of us conservatives now, both inside Congress and outside, is the next big fight to immigration debate. And I am I am really nervous that the bills being talked about in the Senate aren't even close to what the American people elected us to do in 2016. Aren't even, aren't even close to the mandate of the 2016 election. So our leadership promised, the Speaker of the House promised the Freedom Caucus and House conservatives that he would whip the good that legislation, bring it to the floor, and that we would work to pass it. And that is not even happening. Not, our, our leadership is not even whipping it. So we're gonna, the Freedom Caucus is going to make a hard push to say, look, you told us you were going to do it. We have to do this. If we do a bill that's being talked about like the Durbin Graham bill in the Senate, that, that will just completely frustrate our, our voters and the American people. So that's the next big fight coming, and we had better weigh in and get this one right or we're going to be in big trouble. And that's really my question. How do we take this to the next level? It seems like every time you guys try to tell leadership, all right, we'll vote for the budget bill. Um, if you give give us something, they stab us in the back. And what I, you mentioned the Goodlatte bill. What I don't understand is this. You have two committee chairmen with the relevant jurisdiction over the issues signed on to it. You have, it's not just a restriction bill. It has amnesty in there. It has um, a massive in- increase for this new H2C ag program. Um, right now it's capped. It's a big increase. They increase H1B visas. So it's not only restriction, but then it has a lot of really, you know, things that are 70, 80% issues that everyone wants. Yep. Chain migration, diversity visa lottery, asylum loophole, sanctuary cities. Um, th- this is, I mean, how could someone oppose it? I mean, I don't like the amnesty, but, you know, these guys love amnesty. All right, you, you got it. What, is, what in that bill do they not like? That's a frustrating thing to me, too. It's like this, this should be sort of where we would think a compromise would actually get to in many ways. But the thing I say about the bill, bill is it, it is entirely consistent with where the American people have been. What the American people are so frustrated and tired of is, oh, we'll do the amnesty now, and we promise, promise, promise that we'll, we'll get to some kind of border security and do something to improve security on our border. That's not going to fly anymore. So let's do what they, what they want first, which is build a border security wall, end chain migration, stop the visa lottery, um, deal with this crazy sanctuary city policy. Let's do all that, and then when we get all that done, then we're willing to look at this DACA situation and fix that as well, but not, not we've got to do it in a prioritizing way that the American people elected us to do it in. That's what the Good Life Bill actually does. And so if that would be the final product, I'd be fine with it. You'd be fine with it. There could be better. I get that. But this is one that has, I'm convinced that that thing was put on the floor of the House of Representatives, it would pass. It would pass. And my guess is there might even be a couple Democrats who vote for because it's so common sense. That's the kind of legislation we have to do. But instead, we keep talking about the Senate and their process and Durbin and amnesty and it's like, give me a break. That is not what we were sent to Washington to accomplish. You know, I'm going to ask you an uncomfortable question that someone asked me recently. Said, Daniel, have you ever been proud of anything in your lifetime politically that we've enacted into law? A couple times we've been proud of blocking things like the Gang of Eight, um, although now we're not even blocking so many bad things. What have we accomplished? Republicans have controlled the House for 20 of the last 24 years. Um, Obviously, they have all three branches. Aside from tax cuts, I really cannot think of anything. And headed forward, this is a very historic opportunity. Um, The economy's coming around. Trump's numbers are going up. The tax cuts were more successful than imaginable. 
Yet nobody is talking about making the tax cuts permanent. No, they don't want to do welfare reform. They're not doing budget reconciliation, and they're not reforming the filibuster. Are they, in fact, saying that they're going to go the entirety of this year and do nothing? <laughs> Excuse me, Daniel. Um, you know, I, I guess in the, in the broad sense, um, I'm proud of the tax cut bill we did. Um, Republicans a few few years back, of course, did do welfare reform. Unfortunately, that was, <laughs> excuse me, undone by um, the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, and we need to get back to that issue. I wish we were going to do that, and I hope that there's still a chance we might get to that this year. But you're right. Uh, most of the most of the quote victories that conservatives can look at in the last several years is blocking really bad things like cap and trade and some of the other things that had <laughs> come along. So. And, and frankly, we blocked some some bad stuff and improved some things this this past Congress. But um, this the, the, this previous year, overall, that's it's frustrating for everyone. And and we expected that you know we would not be increasing spending like we just did this past week. So, uh, like I said earlier, we got we got some work to do um, if we're going to be doing things that are consistent with the mandate that the people gave us in 2016. Do you have any plans to? block the omnibus bill so in other words just for, so our listeners know at the end of the day this bill it spends about let's say 100 billion a little bit more maybe 120 billion immediately the rest of the spending is really just a matter of busting the budget cap saying now you could spend more but a cap is a cap you don't have to go to the cap when they actually have the long-term yeah. bill in march is there any you know i when you were it's funny i remember paul teller as your uh your, yeah. your chief of staff there when when back in the good days in 2011 cut cut cap and balance are yep. you pr- preparing a similar plan like cut cap and balance to rally around to rally the base around and kind of name and shame people into supporting as a counter narrative to what they're going to do with the omnibus bill well i think you'll see it's looked at that and you're exactly right they don't have to spend to the level that's been uh set but typically washington We'll, we'll, we'll do that and more, of course, as we've seen all too often. So we have a, we have a fight and a debate there. Uh, I think what you're going to see though in the next few weeks is, is a complete focus on making sure we can, we do everything we can to stop a bad immigration bill. Um, again, I just think this is so critical. This was the issue that propelled President Trump to the nomination in 2016. I think the key issue that helped him become President, I think in President Trump's first year, he's done a good job. Um, you know, the economy is up, uh, taxes are down, Gorsuch is on the court, ISIS is backpedaling, the embassy is going to Jerusalem. That's a pretty darn good first year. But if we turn around and a bad bill gets through the Congress on immigration, I think that can really hurt not just the Republican Party, thinking in a political sense, but really hurt the country and, um, and be harmful uh, because it undermines the rule of law and a whole host of other things. So um, that's my concern, and, and that's what I think you're going to see us focus in the next several weeks uh, in the Congress. Well, Congressman, I could tell you there are millions of people in this country that are counting on you guys as a last line of defense because it certainly not, is not going to be in the Senate. Uh, you know, we've had a history of bad bills yeah. and immigration over the last 12 years, really, since 2006. It's the House that's traditionally stopped it. And, uh, you know, unless Paul Ryan is made to understand that uh, he needs to toe the line of the Republican Party platform and the Trump campaign promise, 
there's going to be serious trouble in November because you guys are going to be caught in the paradox of, on the one hand, incurring all the liability of controlling government and the angst against the status quo, but you're not going to have the leverage to enact the policies we want to run on. Um, That's the question. Is there a way to get to Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and get them to actually listen to what the the president wants to do and what, what the American people want? Well, the, the, the speaker has made the Freedom Caucus two promises. Uh, one, he told us a few weeks ago that uh, the good that legislation would be uh, whipped. They would push for that to get the kind of support it needs in the House of Representatives to pass. We've yet to see that. Uh, second, a couple of years ago, when, when he became speaker, he promised the Freedom Caucus and conservatives in the House that he would not bring up an immigration bill that did not have the support of a majority of the Republican conference, Republican members in the House of Representatives. Right now, there is no way, in my, in, in my judgment, there is no way that a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives support legislation that's being talked about in the state, uh, or excuse me, in the United States Senate. So um, that kind of bill can't come. And so we got to remind the Speaker of, of his commitment and make sure we keep him honest and focused on that commitment so that we get the right kind of immigration policy uh, through if there's going to be a bill. If there's going to be a bill, maybe it'd be better if, if, if we're, you know, only thing worse than, than uh, doing nothing is a bad bill. So we'll, uh, we'll see how this debate unfolds. I know your time is thin today, and I really appreciate you coming coming on with me, especially over a weekend. Just one more point. I want to see if this jogs your your memory. Um, I think you'd appreciate this. In 2013, I wrote about this at Red State. You sent a letter to Ben Bernanke warning and really questioning the $4.5 trillion balance sheet of the Fed, the artificial yeah. l- lower rates. You remember that. And you were asked the question, what's going to happen when eventually the economy recovers and now you want to unwind this and restore interest rates yeah. back to the traditional rates are going to go up. What's and that going, going to up. do? Yeah. And we're seeing that now it hooked the market on this monetary morphine. It's, I call it the opioid crisis of the stock market. So it cannot yeah. function with anywhere near historical norms. What do you think we could do to put pressure both on on the long term pushing long term reforms for the Federal Reserve that they should never have this ability, but also what this means about the bill that Congress just passed oh, in terms it, of servicing the debt. Yeah, and plus, what is it? What is it going to mean, and what we're going to have to pay to service the debt? You know, some this is basic numbers here: twenty trillion, one to one ratio with the debt debt to our overall GDP or overall annual economy. Uh, you get in that range, that's dangerous. We spend about two hundred thirty billion a year on interest payments. That can go much higher as interest rates go up. That's the scary part. And while we're growing well under the Trump economy, which is great, much better than we ever did under the Obama years, uh, the, the fact remains that if you're growing at 3 4%, but your deficit as a percentage of your D- GDP is, is 5 6%, you're not gaining on the problem. And unfortunately, that's where we are. And then what was the response from Congress? Increase spending and make it exacerbate the problem. So that's why this was this is so bad, um, and what it means to to you know the future of the country and to the next generations and, and, and overall uh, overall strength of the economy in the country. That's what concerns me. So yeah, I'm. I'm 
Yeah, I'm just frustrated like you, but our key is we, we can't give up. It's still the best country going, and we got to fight for it. Well, I don't know how you keep such an optimistic demeanor, but at least that's going to give some of our audience hope because there's just so many people in what I call a forgotten man caucus, people that just don't yeah. want to hand out. They don't want to be regulated. They just want to have a chance to have a you know normal cost of living, have high-paying high, high pay, jobs, and just not have government interference. It's just so sad that we can't have nice things, even in a good economy, because of the Fed intervention in order to service debt on the yeah. cheap. And I think, Jim, what, what, I, what I find that a lot of people aren't talking about is that precisely at a time when interest rates are going to have to go up, is when they're increasing spending. CBO already predicted that within nine years, and, and I, th- I believe that was at two, you know, maybe 2.75% interest rate or 3% interest rates, they could go higher than that. Nine years, yeah. it's going to reach $800 billion a year in annual interest payments. That's more than what Medicare costs now. Bigger than what we spend on national defense. If you're if your country spending more on debt service than you are to defend yourself, you probably got some real concerns. You probably got big problems. So that's that's what we're trying to avoid. That's why this bill was was so wrong. And you mentioned one thing. I just maybe I can finish with this, Daniel, because I do got to run. The uh, you talk about the forgotten man in our uh, mission statement for the House Freedom Caucus. We talk about the countless number of Americans who feel like Washington has forgotten them. Our job is to remember remember them, to fight for them, to do it with a smile on our face, to do it in as a productive way as we can, but to never forget we're supposed to be there fighting for them. And that's why we formed the group, and that's what we're going to have to do in the next few weeks as we go into this big immigration debate um, on Capitol Hill. Well, given hell, Congressman, we're certainly going to need your voice and your your colleagues as well, and let's, let's revisit this during the immigration debate, all right? We will. Thanks. Take, take care. God bless. Anyway, folks, that was Congressman Jim Jordan of the Freedom Caucus. He was the founding uh, uh, member of it, and now he is still the representative from Ohio. And by the way, he should have been the chairman of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, um, but they jumped over him for Gowdy, who has much less seniority than he does, and all they value is seniority. But conservatives aren't allowed, so it'll be interesting to see whether they'll allow him to be chairman of that critical committee. And that will be important for us head forward because he has shown he's willing to take the gloves off and just screw, you know, screw leadership. It's enough with them, enough dealing with them. And that is the article the congressman referenced that I put out on Friday, how the Freedom Caucus could take this to the next level. That is the critical thing because what we're doing now, what they're doing now, what we're all doing is not enough. It's not working. It's time for hardball. They need to vacate the chair, motion to vacate the chair, and trigger a new speaker election. They need to take down any process or rule for any spending bill. Don't don't deal with them. Well, if you give us this, no, no, nothing. Create a parallel agenda, a new contract with America. Um, I wish I would have had time to speak to, with him about it, but I felt bad grabbing him on a Sunday like that. Just the need to create a new contract with America and sell it to the American people. Act autonomously. Even if you're not willing to yet register as a new party um, in terms of ballot access, but just in all other things, act like a new party because that is the only way they're going to make a difference. If they, the Freedom Caucus turns into a Freedom Party, 
um, and just cha- changes the rule, the, the way things are done. Right now, they are bringing a knife to a gunfight, frankly, and it, it, it's got to be ratcheted up to the, to, to the next level. So that's that. I just wanted to tie tie up some of the details that we didn't get to that are very important. And obviously, we're going to have the immigration debate this week. We're going to be all over that. Gosh, what a what a crazy week this is going to be. So we're going to expose all the shenanigans on the Senate side. The House, of course, will just sit and play with themselves and do nothing, as always, instead of voting on 10, 20 major good things they could be doing, which they'll never do. So all the action is going to be in the Senate. But this debt problem is a serious thing, and it's not just all oh, the eyes gloss over. Yeah, you talk about debt. You know, it's never going to – the calamity that everyone talks about never really happens. Here's why this time makes a difference. So to begin with, the number you're hearing of a $296 billion spending increase is really underwhelming. It's not true. <clears throat> the amount of spending in this bill is $420 billion. They claim to have $100 billion in offsets, but it's the biggest joke around. It's not just the gimmick. There's not a single dollar of legitimate spending cuts or offsets in this bill. For example, the biggest offset officially that they score with their phony accounting gimmicks at CBO is $35 billion in savings from extending sequestration cuts to 2027. So they're abolishing sequestration now, but saying, oh, you know, because it was enacted in 2012, so the 10-year window was supposed to go for 10 years to 2022. Well, we're going to continue it from 2022 to 2027. <laughs> I mean, th- that that's the joke. So it's $420 billion in spending. And again, that's over two years. And this is before we get to the infrastructure dumpster fire that Trump just introduced this week. You know, another few hundred billion um, obviously, there's going to be a lot more emergency spending than even the $150 billion that they already allocated, which is not emergency spending, obviously, because no matter what, it didn't need that much. So uh, it's going to be a lot more than that. But that's just two years. The budget caps are gone. So you really have to project out. Normally, when you hear spending figures, you hear a 10-year budget frame. This is over just two years. Over 10 years, this is easily going to be an extra $2 trillion in spending. Why does this matter? It matters because, like we talked about with the congressman, interest rates are starting to go up. The only reason why we haven't reached the fiscal Armageddon at this point until now is because the feds artificially kept rates near zero to service debt on the cheap, also to juice up the stock market when the economy was doing bad. It was all political. So we were spending for most of these years roughly $230 billion a year on interest payments on the debt. That is slated, according to CBO, to rise and in just nine years to $800 billion. And by the way, now that they pass this bill, it's going to be much worse than that. It's probably going to be you know six, seven years. $800 billion. Then we're done. See, that's when you can no longer ignore the debt crisis. It was all the monetary manipulation out of the Federal Reserve that allowed us to gloss over this issue and get away with murder, fiscal murder. That's going to change now. So that's why this is so important. And that's why this is the endgame because I, I feel – Not that I think we would have actually solved the crisis, but we could have. We recovered possession of the ball. Picture being down somewhat early on in the um, 
fourth quarter of a game by two plays, two two scores, 10, 12 points. You need to have, you know, make two touchdowns, maybe a touchdown and a field goal. It's doable. But imagine you get possession of the ball, you're down about 10 points midway through the fourth quarter, and then you you, you toss an interception and the other team scores a touchdown. Now, rather than you taking it from 10 to three-point deficit, it goes from 10 to 17. That's when you're done. And that's where this is. The economy was coming back. Revenues were going up. Um, there really was a chance if we would have repealed Obamacare, enacted the free market health care reform, as we've been speaking so passionately about for the past year, and then pursued welfare reform, we could have, even without addressing Social Security, I think we could have at least gotten into gotten within scoring position. This will this is done. We are done now. Obviously, Trump just introduced his budget. You know, they're openly calling for trillion dollar fiscal deficits. And by the way, the last time we had that with Obama, at least there was an economic depression. This is with an economic boom. But that's where we are now. Unfortunately, we always have things to distract us. The conservative media, now over the weekend, you have the whole North Korea business with Kim Jong Un's sister and oh outshining mike pence and again i'm not making fun out of it i'm not saying you know north korea is certainly very important but whenever you have something that's more cultural it's in the news there's going to be some sort of controversy with the olympics every day this week Uh, of course perfectly designed i'm not saying it's a conspiracy to have the olympics on the same week we have amnesty i'm just expressing expressing frustration that every time we have a major policy fight where conservatives if they raise their voices they could influence we can't influence you know the cultural battles we have in the news but we can influence the policy outcomes by pressuring the republican members by having people like drudge and fox news and rush and sean hannity actually focus on it but they're not it's gonna be all about you know kim jong-un's sister this week all the news. So great. Now now they're going to rush through amnesty and no one's going to pay attention. And by the way, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sorry, we're going to focus on that a lot more this week. But just to kick things off, Chuck Grassley, Tom Cotton, John Cornyn, David Perdue, a couple others introduced, officially introduced the Trump amnesty plan. And what scares me is that this is now the right most goalpost of debate. Not the good lap bill, not no amnesty. It's more amnesty than the so-called DACA business. We're certainly not going to get that. That's that's not even the starting point. It's the right mo- most goalpost. Mitch McConnell's starting with a blank bill. So th- this is this is horrible. It's going to be a very busy week for all of us. Anyway, got to run now. I really have a lot more to delve into, and you, we're going to put out another recording this week just to go through the profundity of this betrayal of this perfidy this ground and pound because no one else is going to talk about it but anyway thanks so much for listening let me know what you thought of of jim jordan's comments and you know your suggestions for the future questions you want me to ask uh members and candidates we are gonna have some candidates on the show as well in the coming weeks but thank you all for listening thank you for tuning in to westwood one's podcast network this has been another episode of the conservative conscience 